Sorry for you, Johnny. Oh, Sorry. man. Whoa. Holy Spirit, would you fill Johnny afresh? And would we be attentive to your word for us tonight? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Really loud, Sam, is that right? We good? Yeah. 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 Good evening. Good evening. How are we all? Good. Sound it. How are we all? Still not great. One more try. How are we all? Good. Cracking. As Andy mentioned, a few of us were at the All Saints annual thank you end of year, start of new year. End of year, start of new year, shindig type thing we do. So I was on the bar till 11, well, 11, 12 o'clock, like behind it, not at the bar. Although I feel like I might as well have been. So I'm not quite with it, but we'll go with it anyway. It's like a perfect time, six, whatever it is, seven o'clock on a Sunday evening, with a slightly tired preacher to do a bit of hardcore theology. Are we up for it? Yeah. How's all your Greek and Hebrew? Yeah. Oh no, there's someone who knows it. Just pretend I'm right. Okay, so here we go. So, that verse that we just had, um, yeah, it's New Testament, it's in Matthew, but we're going to skip back a little bit because I want to mess with your heads a little bit and change the way that we look at it. Um, so Jesus, in that verse, is referencing the Shema, which, if you want to turn to Deuteronomy 6, that's the one, 6, 4, 5-ish, something like that, um, there's this little verse, it's tiny, but for the Hebrews, this was like the pinnacle of what it meant to be the children of God. This was their, like, their fundamental commandment. This was the thing that they, they orientated their life around, their community, the way they were. Um, I haven't got a Bible with me, but I'll do a vague paraphrase of it. Oh, Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Now, as we've just read in Matthew, very similar, except Jesus changes one of the words, or does he? That's the thing. So Jesus uses, with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Now, the problem we have is, when we look at the Bible, we have the Hebrew, translated into the Greek, a few hundred years later on, filtered through Latin, and it comes out the other end in English. Now, English messes everybody's other language up. If you translate anything into English, you end up in the right pickle. So we're going to have a, a little look at some of that. And also, there's a big problem that the Greek and Hebrew words for stuff do not mean the same thing as each other. They don't mean the same thing in English either. So it's just, it gives me brain ache. So you lot are in for it tonight, to be honest. So let's work through them. Oh, look at this lovely little diagram. But none of you are none the wiser looking at that. They're probably more confused. So the first word, heart. Well, right. Just to bear in mind, we're going to do a load of theology at the start. Stay awake, go with it, and halfway through, we'll switch to something more practical, useful, and actually, you know, might have an impact on your lives rather than this stuff. But it's important, so bear with me. 
The Hebrew word for our heart is labab. A bit like kebab, but with an L. <laughs> Don't remember it. And that means inner intelligence. Your, your inner rationale, in your inside, who you are. And the way that they viewed heart in the Hebrew world was it wasn't... They didn't, it's, like, it's almost like mind, but it, they didn't think from here. They thought from their gut, from the inner being of where they are. It's from like inside you. It comes out like that. And it's far more than just rationale and just intelligence and all of that. Like it's inclusive of that, but it's not just that. It goes deeper than that. So like an example, David was a man after God's own heart. But that's, it doesn't mean that he was, you know, like in some sort of spooky spiritual way. He, he was like God. He wasn't, as we all know. But what he did do, he's, he thought like God, which is why a kid in front of his own home army and a massive other army walks to the middle. This young boy can take out a massive giant with a stone was because he was at the heart of God. That's the way he thought. He understood things in the same way God does. In the Greek, this is when it gets all a bit complicated. They use the word cardia. And that means similar. It means inner heart, character, life, mind, your intentions, your center. And it's your drives, like whether that's irrational or automatic, but things like desire, stuff like that. Now, heart gets all complicated, but we'll come back to that in a minute. Hebrew for soul, nefesh. That speaks of emotion and depth and the otherness of life, what we'd call the spiritual. There's something that you can't quite put your finger on, the thing that, that makes you who you are when everything else is stripped away. So, for example, you can't define a human being by their capacity for thought or their ability to think or their intelligence or anything like that. That does not define who a person is. But the soul does. That's the thing when you strip everything else out of the way, you're still left with the person. And it's like guttural, and it's hard to articulate what that is. In Greek, it's this, I can't pronounce this one, Andy does it for me. Psuche. That's the one. And that is what makes you alive. It's the seat of your being, the thing that means you exist. So it's very similar. Then you've got the Hebrew word for strength or might. I think it's pronounced like miod or something like that. It's that, yeah, the M1 there. And that's your ability and your capacity, your abundance. It's, it's what you are physically, what you have, your money, your time, your energy, everything that's not internal. It's your external abilities to do anything or right down to like family, stuff like that, anything you have. And it's, it's kind of like a forceful word, but not aggressive. It's not like... You know, it's not strength or might as in I'm going to punch you in the face. It's just you have a capacity to do something. Now, the problem is Greek also has another word for heart, which is dianoia or something like that. The trouble with this is, so the Hebrew Bible, by the time of Jesus, has been translated into Greek. So that's what the Bible Jesus is using, a Greek Bible. But... Depending on who translated it, they changed the word. So Hebrew has one word for heart. They might have a few, but the one that he uses is that one. The Greek can't articulate what Hebrews meant by heart in one word. So they have cardia and dianoia. 
Now, dianoia is like kind of a, um, that's like rational intellect and critical thought. It's not so deep as cardia. So it depends on which one they used. You end up with a bit of a problem in that they translate cardia and dianoia differently. It ends up in heart in both English. But dianoia can be mind. So when you get the English Bible, you end up with heart, soul, and mind. The trouble is, that's not quite what Jesus is talking about because he's basically looking at the Old Testament. So he's looking at heart, soul, and strength. Cardia can also be translated into strength or might. So can you see where it's kind of gone a little bit squiffy when we translated it into English? You get a bit of a problem when actually Jesus is... He just wouldn't have changed those words because this was like this, the centrality of why it meant to be a Jew. You just you don't mess around with that. And also... It's to show that it's the whole person that we're talking about. It's not like heart, soul, and a different type of heart. It's heart, soul, and being. It's how you think, how you feel, and who you are physically. We're tracking with this? Yeah? Good. So as 21st century people trying to read and get our heads around this, a millennium or two later, it can be quite confusing. And we have a problem that the Hebrew... Hang on, I've just read that stuff. Don't worry about that. How they, how they wanted to understand stuff, it was very different for, um, to us than it is for them. Why? Right, something's gone horribly wrong in my notes, so we're going to have to blag it. Don't worry. Right, the Hebrews... I can go here for a second. The Hebrews have a completely different worldview to us. So their whole entire understanding of everything around them, how they view life... Things, spirituality, everything like that is completely different to us. They have a thing called a dialectical worldview. A dialectical worldview sounds all nice and complicated, but all it talks about is Venn diagram time. Um, It means that things dialogue with each other. They talk to each other. So things that are opposing, things that are opposite to, like, I don't know, electricity and water. That's a bad example, but they don't mix. But in Hebrew worldview, they would. And um, things like go together and intertwine, and everything's kind of mixed up. It's not like a case of Greek Western thinking, where we, we, we all have a tendency of compartmentalizing life and things that we do and what we, what we see. That's how we do stuff. Well, the Hebrews didn't. They did this with it. So everything mixes up. So when you get to things like heart, mind, and strength... Next slide, please. This happens. So you can't look at heart, soul, and might separately from each other. This is the whole person that we're talking about. When we talk about how you love God, we talk about the everything, our whole full being, everything that we are, everything we think, and everything we feel loves God at once. Also, we have a problem in the way that we talk about love in a Western world, in that it's very affectionate, it's very nice, it's very cuddly, it's very, you know, like, church has a tendency of making Jesus this, like, my boyfriend type stuff. Not the case at all. You don't talk about God in that way. He's so other to us that to love God is it's beyond something we can really comprehend. It's more about aligning ourselves, body, 
or might, soul and heart with the Creator, which we'll talk about more in a minute. It's a holistic worldview, rather than just being, again, compartmentalized, the idea that you can have one or two of those things and not the other one. That doesn't work at all. Now, some people might have a greater display or an emphasis of one or two of these things, but that's kind of an imbalance. It's not something that we're designed to do. So God works in threes, sometimes sevens, sometimes twelves, but we can ignore that. For now, he's working in threes. So he is Trinity. He is three in one. We've sung that today. Um, when he made mankind, or humankind even, sorry, he made male, female in community with God. When he made us, he made us heart, soul, and body. That's what we are. Or body, soul, and spirit even. That's a whole other kind of worms. We won't go into that today, but it's the same thing as this, basically. And it messes with your head thinking about it, but basically, if it's good enough for God, that's how God operates in this way, then so should we. So, why does this all matter? Because at the end of the day, we have to think holistically. Rather than being Western and trying to separate things off and trying to live one area of life over here, one over here, over here and one here, they all collide together, they all intertwine. And that's the way we must operate if we're going to do anything really. This is what Jesus is talking about. So if Jesus says it, deal with it. So, we have a bit of a problem with this in the Western church, I would say, that we have a tendency to just do one or two, and we miss out the third, or we just do one really well. So who has been to those type of churches where it's all about the word, like the word of God is what matters? Yeah. Nothing else, as long as you know your Bible and you know your teaching and it's like this word is the thing. Too much heart. It's all intellect, all thought, all mind. Nothing wrong with it, say, but it's just if that is your only emphasis, there's a big problem. Or if you're like me, I was brought up fundamentalist Pentecostal. Lots and lots of jumping around, happy clappy, lots of victorious, like if there wasn't 10 people healed, strongholds broken, all of that sort of stuff. If that didn't happen, we had a bad service. Like, there's no point in being there unless like, the clouds were like, descending and the wind was blowing around the service and all of that. That's what I grew up in. And um, yeah, it's fine. Again, I quite, secretly quite like all that. Like, if that happened, that'd be pretty cool, to be honest. Like, I think we should strive towards it. But when that is your emphasis, that is too much might. That's too much, you know, doing. And one of the most dangerous things for a 21st century church, I would say, is the idea that how we feel. Like, I feel that I am like this, and God loves me, so therefore what I feel I am is affirmed, and therefore don't argue with me about it. It's a really unhelpful, kind of unhealthy view. That's too much soul. It's too much feeling without any of the other two. So, like we say, God is three, he works in threes, and so should we. We should try and wrestle ourselves back into being people who are holistic, are combined of body, of, sorry, soul, heart, strength, rather than being separated out and trying to live life 
in a compartmentalized manner. So, people got that? You with me? Yeah. I'm so tired tonight. Thank you. Okay, let's get practical. Let's see how we can actually make this work in our lives. Heart. God gave us mind and the ability to communicate, to listen, to learn, to read, and to understand. And he gave us an intention and choice. And we need to engage with him in our minds and our intellect. So firstly, Bibles. Let's be really honest with ourselves. Yes, we read them, but how often, really? Like some people more than others, and you can kind of tell those people. They just seem to have something, you know, they tend to be a bit more like Jesus, whether we like to admit it or not. It's annoying, or the opposite, actually. They tend to be a little bit scary and want to wallop you around the head with the Bible. But what we all need to know, it, what we all need is that that needs to happen more. And I don't want to beat anyone up about it, but God basically speaks in three ways. He speaks by his spirit, whether that's in media, whether that's in nature, whether it's in music, whether it's in what we read or other people, but that's the medium, that's not him. The spirit talks through those things to us. He speaks through the church. He talks through this community, from our other communities, wherever we're at. He talks through people and those around us. And he talks through the Bible, both community and individually. And it's a living text that carries the ups and downs of the whole history of humankind. The whole communication with God and his people and vice versa. And it continues today and will continue on. Now the idea of heart doesn't allow us to passively engage with God in a mental way. You can't, you can't do it like just say, as long as I sort of occasionally dip into the Bible, that'll work. That's not how it works. The way, it's the way we read, study and discuss the Bible must be a proactive, chosen thing. Now many of you, if you are part of this congregation regularly, if you're not, we, well, I'll explain it in a minute, we, we did this thing called the Year of Biblical Literacy, or Yobble, as we like to call it. How many of you enjoyed that? All four of you. <laughs> so we talked through the Bible together as a congregation. We didn't just read it. We, um, we explored how you should read it. We looked at hermeneutics, or like how you read the Bible. We looked at the different genres, all of that stuff. And we, we re- actually, it got pretty, especially my small group in particular, we got pretty intense with it at times and got a little bit argumentative. But that's a good thing. It's that whole... Um, it's about in community wrestling with this God who is seen in the Bible, who is seen in each other. And it's about exploring how we view the world. And it's not just about the Bible. It's about pushing and expanding and being transformed. So when it talks about being transformed by the renewing of your mind, that's not renewing of your inner spirit or anything like that. It's renewing of your mind. And it's, it's not some spooky spiritual thing that happens. It's like, like I mentioned before, David was a man after God's own heart because he thought like God, he understood things like God, he viewed it, the world like God and other people like God. Now, he didn't get that by some sort of freaky revelation or like passively allowing God to make him like it. It was rational, everyday, thoughtful, and his worldview was the same as God's. 
And again, that is how a boy was allowed to kill a giant. And it also shows how somebody could write some of the Psalms he wrote because there was a realism to how he viewed God. It wasn't like some fluffy spiritual thing. It was a, do you know what? This is the reality of life. And I don't feel like God's particularly listening right now. Like he, he had a reality to him. And for that reason, it was thought through. It wasn't fake. And again, this is the reason why we push so hard on small groups in this church. It's because it's in community that this happens. You can't engage with the Bible fully, individually. You can to an extent. You can, it can speak to you. It can permeate your life. But it doesn't engage with us fully until we do it in community together. Because we're body, not everyone who finger or something. And it's where you can ask the hard questions. It's where you can disagree and you can disagree well. It's where you allow your established views or your understanding to be tested and moulded. And the heart is also about constantly challenging our way of thinking, our thoughts, our views. Now, I'm a confessed liberal lefty. If you follow my Twitter feed, you will realise this. Rob gets quite irate about it, but it's good for winding him up, to be honest. Now, really, in the grand scheme of things, that doesn't really matter at all when you compare it to the way that God views the world and his ethics, and his political, like any politics he has, I don't think he really has any, and his view. And the moment we become mentally, intellectually, and even doctrinally static and stuck, we're basically negating and rejecting our heart becoming like God. We're stopping the way we think and understand how we feel in that way to be like God. So however it works best for you, whether it's listening to a podcast, whether it's having a theological argument with your friends, not argument for argument's sake, but just to kind of get to the truth of things, whether it's watching particular short videos by famous pastors from America that we all know, or any other way, wherever it helps us to engage in community, to constantly renew, push, challenge our mind and our thinking to be more like God's view of the world, we need to do it. So to love God with all our heart is to take this thing we call a brain, our intellect, our will and intention, to choose to steer it towards him to say... God, how do you think? Make me think like you and let me see the world as you do. So that's heart. Soul. Now, soul is the bit that gets abused a lot in our contemporary setting and it can be so esoteric and fluffy and out there and it can make no sense for a lot of the time. For the Hebrews and first century Jews and Greeks, the soul was an integral component to being alive. It's, it's the emotion, but it's more than just feeling and it's not particularly esoteric. It's, probably, it's what we call in our thinking spirituality or spiritual or the otherness of life. The thing that makes you who you are despite what you do or say is the realness of who you are. And it's, it's like the essence of being human. And how we love God with all our souls, it's not just a passive thing. It's, practically, it's practical. And it's probably the most hardest and most rewarding and transforming thing we can do. But it's a pain in the neck, to be honest. How do you do it? So I'm going to give you a few examples. But do you remember a few months ago, we did Practicing the Way of Jesus, where as a church we explored 
spiritual practices, disciplines, and things like silence and solitude and the Sabbath, not the sexiest words in the world in, you know, in biblical thinking, but they're key. And Jesus did all of them, all the time. So it's, if it's good enough for him, and it's how he thought life should be lived, to be fully human, then I suggest we take note. And also, God is completely other to this world. He doesn't, just, he doesn't span this world. He dwelled in it in Jesus, but he, ultimately, he is beyond anything we can comprehend. And so part of our engaging with him must acknowledge that aspect of who he is. So like I say, practically, I'm going to give you two things that I have found have helped me. And not in kind of like a spiritual guru kind of way. Like, you know, this isn't self-help. This is about prayer in its truest form and not in an intercessory kind of way. Not in a, oh, this has just happened, help me man in the sky kind of way. We're not talking about quick, easy, nothing wrong with that actually, but this isn't what we're talking about today. What we're talking about is allowing God to surround and envelop us in the mutual love between father and child. Basically, it's how the creator of the universe gives his children a cuddle. Just, ugh. Yeah, I don't know why I wrote that. It's disgusting, but it's, it's true. So firstly, I can't stress this enough, actually. Um, get yourself a mentor or a spiritual director. Now, it's, they basically mean the same thing. It's just spiritual director sounds a little bit, you know, la-di-da. And it's exactly the same thing. It's somebody who you know can ask you anything about your spiritual journey and your walk in life and can push you to find your truest self in Christ. And I'm sure if I ask anybody here who has that kind of relationship with somebody, they would say how difficult it would be to function without it. Like mine, mine was there this morning. He looked all chuffed, actually, when I mentioned this. He was like, mm. kind of, <laughs> it was nice, it was fuzzy. But, um, like, you know, my life has transformed over three, three or four years because of that, that man and the way that I can be so honest with him and he kicks me around a bit and he makes me face up to who I really am and what's going on in my life. It's not like a life coach, but it's someone I can journey with. Um, he can share the ups and downs and the honesty and messiness of life. And it, it will change your life doing that. It will, it will mess you up, but you need to do it. Like, if I had my way, every person in this room would have a mentor. And I'd probably suggest that everybody mentors somebody somehow. Practically speaking, that's an absolute nightmare to get my head around and work and make happen, but that's what I'd do if I could have my way. Because quite frankly, when we're left to our own devices, everything goes pear-shaped. You know, like, you know if you're just like, left on your own for too long, you start to think your own thoughts, you start to try and you analyse yourself, you start to try and guide yourself, and it goes horribly wrong. And actually, we're not called to that, we're called to live and work in community. Secondly, Find a time in the day, or as often as you can in a week, to purposefully find silence and solitude. And this is risky to say to a bunch of people. Do you know what? We're actually quite a broad congregation this evening, so I'll just go with it. Um, that is not about putting on some worship music with some nice fluffy pads. You know, like... It's usually like a certain note that you can hit and it makes you feel like Jesus is there immediately. It's not about doing that. There's nothing wrong with that. That can be helpful to people. 
It can be engaging with God, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about deeper than just how you feel. Whether you feel close to God, whether you feel far away from him, whether you feel like he is right next to you, whether you feel like he just doesn't want to talk to you, and whether you can be bothered or not, or whether you need him or not, it is beyond that. It is about putting aside a time. It's the effort of it. It's the practice of it, of about letting you lean back into God and letting, letting him reorientate who you are in your soul. It's about shutting this up, your mind, your heart, and it's about shutting this up and letting God just be God in you and around you to permeate your being and your feelings. In an instant culture like ours, it's an absolute nightmare because we want everything immediately and it's, everything's based on how we feel and how we think. But to use a kitchen as a metaphor, God really isn't into fast food. I mean, if he was here, he'd be cracking out the slow cooker. Do you know what I mean? This is how he operates. He takes his time over things, annoyingly, but he does. So to love God with all our soul is to be disciplined and practiced enough to allow time, the removal of distraction and external input for God to be father to us, to be a brother and to make us step out of the ordinary and engage with the other. It's to let God do the talking, basically, to let him reorientate how we feel and how we, you know, like our emotions are actually quite a powerful thing. They mess us up or they can empower us. But how often in our world do we rebuke God via our emotions as opposed to God is God and let him reorientate our emotions the way we feel, orientated by knowing who God is. Okay. Might or strength. Now, this one's pretty obvious. There's really not any excuse not to do this one. Everything we have, everything we own, all our talents, our money, our family, everything... That all of that could not even come close to being enough to pay God back for just as being alive, for our very existence. Forget salvation and all of that, like just the fact that we are here as human beings in the face of God. Nothing we can bring really is, could ever really be a sacrifice. So it's a good job that he never asks us for that, actually. It's a Christian lie that says if we give enough, then we are loving God. If we serve enough if we do this if we go on the rotor if we do everything in church that, ever, that suggests that we are loving god more than somebody else it's a nonsense like anything we could ever do or anything we could ever be would be enough for the creator of the universe so how do we love god with all our might it's simply this we look at what we have and we ask the question god what would you do with it and do you know what? When you ask those sort of questions, they're dangerous because he always answers. How often do we spend our time wrestling with God over something we want an answer for over here and just fighting and fighting and fighting and he doesn't speak? Do you know why? Half the time, he just wants you to ask the simplistic things in life, like what would you have me do over here? And, or he's already answered, we didn't like it, so we ignore it and then go over here instead. Actually, he will answer when we, when we ask those difficult questions. Now, money, we don't need to go over that again today. But I would just say, if Jesus looked at your bank account right now, and I speak to myself here as well, would you be embarrassed? Or would you be proud? You know, like, it tends to be one of those two. Or would you feel a sense of peace? 
And the same goes for our time, our energy, our possessions. Are we reflecting the grace of God in what we are and what we have? And I take us one step closer, one step further even. It's about vocation. Now, the reason the Church of England doesn't refer to being a priest as a job is because it understands it as vocation. It is an extension and an expression of the individual, of who you are. It comes out of you. You are a priest. You're not, you don't become one. You just are one. Now, people might argue that, but that's what I think. Now, we here, we believe in the priesthood of all believers. Now, that's not just a cop-out to allow people to just, you know, let a lay person do communion, for example. That's not what it's all about. It's about seeing everybody's individual job, role, and place in the world, whether you're a bin man or a CEO of a company. Whatever you're doing, whether you're a student or whether you're a multi-billionaire software developer, whatever you do, that is when it's vocation, when it comes out of your very being, of who you are, that is a priestly mission. That is an expression of, your, of yourself into the world via God. Now, this is the challenge. If what you're doing day to day in life does not reflect your vocation or goes against your being a priest, then perhaps it is worth reevaluating and beginning to explore what gives you energy, what gives you life, what makes you feel the smile of God. So rather than just striving for make money or to provide or whatever else you want to do, what gives you the best what makes you best reflect the nature and character of Jesus? Now, I don't mean you all go and quit your jobs tomorrow or quit uni or change courses or anything like that. But for some of you, maybe. Maybe actually God is calling you to a radical realignment of your life and how you look at your career, how you, reor- how you orientate your family life, the way you physically live, the way you spend, buy, give time. And I want you to ask the question, does this reflect the person of Christ that I know for myself and that I see in my church, family, and wider community? Now, the thing is, as we spoke about at the beginning, these things are all integrated. They feed each other. They make each other work. How often have we realized that we're holding on to too much physical stuff, too much possession, too much striving for something? And then twig, we've not engaged with the Bible or community or just engage with God in silence for a long time. These things intertwine. Or how often have we not allowed our energy and time to work for us in order to create a space for the mutual love of the Creator and ourselves to flourish? And to sum up, to love God with all our heart, soul, and strength is to realign ourselves individually and in community, daily, hourly, with him. Understanding, knowing who he is and how our lives, community and world should be, and acting accordingly to see that kingdom come to fruition. So this stuff isn't an optional extra. I know it's harsh, but you know what? 93% of this nation, this city, our towns and villages, do not know Christ. They don't have a relationship with him. Whatever you want to argue about how salvation works or anything like that, they, they don't know him. And do you know what? This country is in a mess when we look at it. Do you want to alter it? When we 
fully engage with God, when we love him to our fullest ability, in our heart, in our soul, and in our might, when we choose to orientate, to realign our thinking and our heart, how we feel, our bodies, our time, our energy, and our money, to look towards God. Because it isn't going to alter any other way. That's, this is the, we're the kind of, you know, we're God's plan A in Jesus. <laughs> so when we start to love God how we're fully designed to be, not in some sort of mushy Jesus and my boyfriend way, like I said before, but in the truest child-to-a-parent relationship, in an intimate, holistic, and permeating way, that's when we'll see this country, our city, and our towns, and this church, actually, and our own churches, wherever we've come from today, that's when we will see the kingdom of God break through and start to properly impact our world, our lives, our family, our community, and those around us. Amen? So we're going to pray. Can we stand? Time, are we? So a little bit of time. Um, here we're unapologetically charismatic.